You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter together, 10 verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to, to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is our confident expectation that your spirit will be our teacher and our guide, and that your word, which is light when it is unfolded, would be to us like bread from heaven sent down for us to eat on. We pray that you would feed now your people by your word as we listen to your voice in the text. We ask that our time here today may be spent profitably learning of you and of doctrine and theology, which is important to us. And we ask God that you would be glorified now through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time we were together, or that I was here, you were together without me. But I asked you to examine the connection between your theology of revivals and your theology of salvation. Remember me issuing you that challenge? Your revivalology, if there is such a thing, and your theology of salvation. How did that go? Talking that over. Now, I know you're saying, Jim, we forgot you even said that. As soon as you said amen, it was over. We were gone. It was out of my mind. Well, that's fine. Give us some thought. This, uh, this last Sunday, I was obviously not here. I was down in Cincinnati, Ohio. Some of you know this. I actually flew into Cincinnati, and I was at a, a conference called Creation in the Gospel, and it was at Ken Ham's Creation Museum in Florence, Kentucky. And... Uh, there was a conference that was put on with Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and WretchedRadio.com, which is a, a, a daily two-hour radio program uh, that's available on Sirius Satellite. And uh, they had a conference, Creation of the Gospel, examining the connection between creation and the gospel, and the, the doctrine of justification. And I had the privilege of going there. Actually, the, I had enough air miles to cover my flight down. And a friend, his church, Sandpoint Christian Fellowship, offered to pay for the hotel, the car rental, and everything but my meals. So I thought, well, I can't pass that up. So I went, and that's, 
That's how I got to go. One of the, I had a lot of highlights from the trip, but one of the highlights was being able to visit the bookstore, which was probably about the size of this room that we're in. Very good sized bookstore. All kinds of books. And I was in there for about three hours. And it's amazing to me how time will just zip by like a rocket when you're in a bookstore. If we ever, if scientists ever want to come up with a way to perfect time travel, I think they're going to have to begin research in a bookstore because time passes differently inside a bookstore than outside a bookstore. So for three hours I was in there coveting and I ran across a book on a shelf, Martin Lloyd-Jones Revival. Now last week I mentioned to you that of everything that I've seen in print, there was only one book that I could rem- that I could recommend on the subject of revival, and that was Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. Well, now I came across another one I can recommend, Revival by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And you say, Jim, you've never even read it, and I haven't yet, but I, I got it, obviously, because I'm holding it. <laughs> I had no idea this book existed, or I would have had this a long time ago. But I can recommend this because it's written by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and anytime you have a chance to read something, I don't even think he wrote, wrote a grocery list that was not interesting or worth reading. So anytime you can pick up something by Martin Lloyd-Jones, do. In fact, I'm going to read you, and this isn't by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I, and I realize that by doing this, I am violating every conceivable rule of preaching in any preaching textbook, but you're used to that by now. I'm going to read to you the first paragraph of just the publisher's note to give you an idea of what the book is about. Listen to this. The chapters in this book were originally given by Dr. Lloyd-Jones as a series of messages on the occasion of the 100th anniversary, anniversary of the Welsh Revival, which occurred in 1859. The Welsh Revival was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which had a profound impact on Wales and throughout England. It was paralleled by similar events in the mid-19th century in America and in other parts of the world. In many ways, the Revival provides an ideal pattern or model for Revival, as it may happen in any time or place through the working of the Holy Spirit. That sounds like good reading, doesn't it? I could read you chapter divisions, but I'll just let you, uh, I'll let somebody request that from me and you can read it yourself. The reason I bring that up is because last time we were together, we were talking about the greatest revival, reformation, turning to God ever in the history of the world that we know of that is written, and that arguably was the city of Nineveh. Probably the most unexpected and the last place that you would anticipate or expect a revival to break out among God-hating, pagan, idolatrous, Jew-hating Ninevites. And yet, that is where God moved, and that is what God did through the preaching of His Word, through the prophet Jonah. You would expect a revival to break out in Jerusalem, which had prophets like Amos and Hosea and Jonah ministering nearby. You would expect revival to break out in any of the Israeli cities or Jewish cities of the day, because they were backslidden, they were falling back. God was calling His people back to them. But among Ninevites, come on, the last place in the world that you would expect a revival to break out is in the city of Nineveh. And yet, it did. And I asked you last time, is there a way that we can tell the difference between a genuine revival and a counterfeit revival? And there is. And I'm going to give that to you, but before we do, we want to, I'm going to quickly review what we did last week, and then we're going to, I'm going to get to this at the end. How can we tell what a, the marks of a genuine revival? How do we know what a genuine revival looks like? So we need to be able to distinguish it between a, from a false revival. So last time we looked at the actions of the king, that he got off his throne, he took off his royal robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat down in ashes as an outward symbol of his humbling before God and his own personal repentance and turning his heart to the Lord. Then we looked at the announcements of the king 
where he says in verse uh, 7, Jonah says he issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let each man call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And now today we're going to look at the attitude of the king, which is in verse 9. I want you to imagine a modern day parallel. The city of Nineveh, if you took the city of Seattle and the city of Portland, the population of those two cities, you were to put them together into one location and build a wall around it about 90, 60 to 90 miles in circumference. That was the city of Nineveh. The largest city of ancient times, the largest city of its time, the largest city in all of antiquity. Babylon did not even approach the size of Nineveh. So I want you to imagine a modern day parallel to what we read in Jonah chapter 3. Imagine that you wake up tomorrow morning and you get your issue of the Spokesman Review or the Daily Bee. And on the front page is a story that says that the mayor of Seattle and the city council have issued a decree. And based upon, uh, based upon the reaction to the preaching of one lone open air preacher who walked down onto, was it Pike's Peak? Pike's, Pike's Place? Down in Seattle? You can tell I'm a huge, I've been there lots of times. They walked down there and that guy stood up on a box and he began to proclaim that God was going to judge the city unless the city repented and turned from its sin. And the mayor heard of this and the city council heard of this and so they issued a decree calling on all men in the city to repent and to turn from their wickedness. And now there was a revival sweeping through the city of Seattle. And on Monday morning, every abortion clinic in the city is shut down. And every abortionist in the city has repented and called out to God for mercy and turned from the violence that was in his hand. And every domestic case of violence in the city has stopped and all of the abusive husbands have repented and turned to God. And they're in church Sunday after Sunday now. And they've asking God for forgiveness. And all the gangs have laid down their firearms and their weapons. And the drug dealers are out of business and every Seattle Seahawks fan has repented of their sin, of being a Seahawks fan, all of that on a massive scale, hundreds of thousands of people all doing that at the same time. Is that unbelievable? If salvation is of the Lord, why is that unbelievable? Right? Now, if salvation is man's work, and it is the result of Man creating an environment or circumstances or a mood or an attitude in which the sinner is sort of manipulated into response, then quite frankly, this and any story like it is utterly unbelievable. But if, as chapter 2, verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord, then it is no more a miracle for God to do that to one person than it is for God to do that to a million persons. In fact, I would be willing to bet that probably around this globe there are a million people who are coming to Christ today before your eyes shut and your head hits the pillow. Why should it be surprising if God is doing that all over the world if He were to do that in one city? It's not unbelievable, is it? Not if salvation is of the Lord, it's not. Let's look at verse 9. Let's look at the attitude of the king. We've looked at his actions. We've looked at the announcement that he gave. Look at his attitude. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, when the king says, who knows, God may do this. He's not expressing doubt as if he doubts that God would do such a thing. He's actually expressing the same sentiment that the sailors in chapter one expressed when they said, Lord, you have done as you have pleased. This is a very humble recognition by the king that God is free to forgive their sin. 
and God is free to punish their sin. The king knows, as well as does all of his nobles and the entire city, that if God were to give them justice, if he were to punish them, it would be nothing more than than what they justly are due. But who knows? God may be willing to turn from his anger if we turn from our sin. If we make a change, God may, as it were, change his mind. They're not doubting the grace of the mercy of God, or nor are they doubting the willingness of God to forgive their sin if they turn. They're actually expressing their confidence that God may indeed show them mercy. Charles Feinberg, in his commentary on the book of Jonah, he says they must have reasoned, why should God send a prophet to warn us? If he had wanted to destroy us outright, he would have left us to pursue our sinful ways. But that must have gone through their heads. If God had intended to just destroy the city and not to offer us mercy, why would he send us a prophet? And why would he send us a prophet and then give us 40 days to turn if he did not offer to us the ability to avail ourselves of his mercy? In other words, if God was intent to just destroy them, he would have just destroyed them. He wouldn't have sent them a prophet. He would have just wiped them out. But the fact that he sent a prophet and the fact that he warned them of the destruction that was going to be theirs, that was coming, was an implicit implicit acknowledgement that mercy was available. And he was offering that mercy to the city. And the king and the nobles and everybody in the city understood. If he wanted to destroy us, he would just destroy us. But he's offering us mercy. Who knows, if we turn from our sin, God may turn from his anger, he may relent, and he may not bring upon us the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon us. And we're going to get into this more next week because we're going to look at verse 10. And you can see as you read verse 10 that God does relent. He does turn from his anger and he doesn't bring upon the city of Nineveh the disaster that he said he would bring on the city. And so we're going to look at next week. What do you do with verses in the Old Testament where it seems to imply that God changes his mind? Does God ever change his mind? What about the verses that say God was sorry that he did such and such? Or he was grieved that he had done this? Or God turned from this and he didn't want to do that. As if God gets new information and says, oh, okay, well, I've changed my mind about what I'm going to do. What do we do with verses that seem to suggest that? Because verse 10 seems to. God said, I'm going to do this. Jonah proclaimed that God would do this. And then God didn't do that. He turned. He did relent. God did. The Old Testament, the Old King James Version says God repented of, the, of his anger. God relented or he turned from it. What do you, how do we understand verses that seem to talk about God? changing his mind as if he got new information. We'll look at that more next week. But that's the attitude of the king. A complete submissiveness to and understanding of the sovereignty of God and the ability and the freedom of God to do as he pleases with his creation. He can show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. He can give compassion to whom he wants to show compassion. God can do as he has pleased. God will do as he has pleased. And God is able to show mercy and he sometimes does. I told you when we began the book of Jonah that we wanted to not just deal with the story of Jonah because the story is familiar to us, but we want to also look at the theology that is behind the book. Some of the, some of the things that are sort of the backdrop of the book, the theological issues that come up. And there are a couple of them that come up in chapter three, and I want to turn your attention to those now. I want you to notice that the repentance of Nineveh was not just or merely an outward display or expression. It was indeed the sentiment of the heart. People can, and we need to be careful that we're not fooled by this, either by our own heart or by somebody else. People can demonstrate a lot of remorse, uh, sing a dirge, shed a lot of crocodile tears, 
be very expressive and emotional when they repent and show it outwardly all over the place, and yet, at the same time, not have a hard attitude of repentance. Not have a hard attitude that actually turns to God. They can show it outwardly in a lot of different manifestations, and yet have no inward repentance whatsoever. And sometimes you run across this, if you're ever doing counseling with people, you can come across somebody who seems to be very outwardly repentant, and they're crying all the time, and they're crying all the time, and they're crying all the time, but then there's just never any change. And their hearts never turn. There's never any actual fruit of repentance that's demonstrated. Was this repentance in Nineveh an actual heart turning to God, or was it just merely an outward show? It was an actual heart turning to God. It wasn't merely an outward show. In Isaiah 58, the Lord condemned those who fast and those who um, mourn outwardly without any heart change. And God says it's just a mockery. He says in Isaiah 58, the people said, Lord, why don't you hear us? Why don't you attend to our fast? Why don't you let's hearken unto our prayers? And God says, when you come together as a fast, you've got all of you, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, message style. You have all of your people out working and laboring and you're baking, breaking their backs and then you're not dividing your food and giving to the poor and taking care of the widows and taking care of the needy and the sick among you. You're not doing anything for me, but you fast for the purpose of striking with the fist and being brutal. And the Lord says, it's all a mockery. You want me to attend to your fasts? Then when you fast, do it with a genuine heart attitude. But the Jews had so perfected a system of religion where they could wear their emotions on their sleeve and their repentance on their sleeve and they could show everybody outwardly how well they fasted and prayed and gave and sacrificed and did everything for the Lord, but their hearts were far from them. And that's what Jesus condemned in the Gospels. He said, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And what was the problem? Outwardly, they displayed all of the righteous attitudes and displays of piety, but inwardly, their heart was far from the Lord because they had perfected the outward show. John Calvin, in his commentary on Jonah, says, Whenever the Scripture mentions fasting and ashes and sackcloth, we must bear in mind that these things are set before us as the outward signs of repentance, which, listen, when not genuine, do nothing else but provoke the wrath of God. But when true, they are approved of God on account of the end in view, and not that they avail of themselves to pacify His wrath or to expiate sins. In other words, there's nothing in prayer or sackcloth or, uh, or weeping and singing a dirge and giving. There's nothing in those things whatsoever that is capable of pacifying the anger of God or expiating or taking away sins. In fact, when those things are done and they're not genuine, they only serve to incite His anger. It's not like God could be fooled by the Ninevites' repentance. Boy, it looks like they're really repentant. I mean, they've got all the outward signs of it. They must be repentant. I won't judge them. No, if this had been just merely an outward show, it would have just further incited the wrath of God and His anger, and He would have destroyed them. But it wasn't just an outward show. It was a genuine repentance. In fact, Jesus said the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, right? It was a genuine repentance. They had turned to the Lord. It wasn't just an outward show. I would explain such a marvelous and incredible turning to God. I mean, really... When you compare this with the swallowing of Jonah by the fish or the being preserved alive three days and three nights in the fish and being regurgitated back up onto dry land and then the turning of the entire city of Nineveh, which to you is, which to you is the most miraculous? Which one of those to you is the most, and I use this term loosely, unbelievable of sorts? 
Well, it must be the turning of an entire city. I mean, you almost mocked me out of the building when I suggested that Seattle could experience a similar thing as this, right? We all laugh. The idea of Seahawks fans turning from their being Seahawks fans. Come on, that could never happen. Everybody laughed. We had a good chuckle over it. That to me, but if I, when I said Jonah got swallowed by a fish, nobody chuckled and laughed and said, unbelievable. Which to you is most unbelievable? The turning of a whole city, right? Well, since it's so unbelievable, and I use that in human terms, it's really not when you believe that salvation is of the Lord, but since it's so unbelievable to us, people have come up with all kinds of ways to try and explain how this has happened. Let me give you a couple examples of it. Some have suggested that this kingdom of Assyria in the early 8th century, that's between, seven, that's between 800 B.C. and 750 B.C., that they were being threatened by a growing kingdom to the north. And so the king and all of the nobles and all of the officials in the city, and the entire city was starting to look at themselves and saying, you know, are the glory days of Nineveh over? Have we sort of reached the extent of what we can conquer and do? Because there's another sort of upstart kingdom up to the north that's threatening us and they may invade us and our days as a world superpower might be over. And someone suggested that this was going on in the early 8th century. And so when Jonah showed up on the scene and he is a messenger from God, pronounced doom upon the city, that everybody recognized, oh, this must be it. It must be from the northern kingdom. That's the doom that's coming in. And so they all sort of outwardly displayed this repentance. And that explains why a whole city would turn because they were fearful of their lives, for their lives, from, uh, from the kingdom to the north. Sound possible to you? Well, it kind of ignores everything that we read in the book of Jonah, doesn't it? What were they really fearful of? God's wrath. They understood that. They understood justice. They understood their sin. They understood the justice of God. They understood who God is, what God was able to do, what God had promised to do, that what God spoke through His prophet would come true. They understood all of that. They're fearful of the wrath of God, not a northern kingdom. Others have suggested that this really was just a play on the emotions. I mean, the, look, look what they did earlier in the chapter. They put on sackcloth, even on their beast of burden, their horses and their oxen and all of that, put sackcloth on them, didn't allow them to eat, didn't allow them to drink. They, they were very emotional people. And the eastern people in Jonah's day, all over the area there, were very emotional, very emotive, wore their emotions on their sleeve, didn't make any points about just displaying whatever they felt in their heart. And so since they were already an emotional people, and they were very susceptible to soothsayers and anybody who had a messenger from a god or from a, a king or something like that, they held them in high respect, any kind of fortune teller or future teller or anything like that, they respected them. And so you take the, the threat of the northern kingdom and their emotional susceptibility and the... the um, their reverence for soothsayers. You put all that together and then Jonah shows up and he claims to be a messenger and he gives them a very emotional message and he plays on their emotions and the whole city turns. Does that sound possible? Let me ask you a question. Can you elicit genuine repentance by playing to people's emotions? Can you elicit genuine repentance by playing to people's emotions? No, you cannot. You cannot. You can fabricate a false repentance by playing with people's emotions. And yet that's the mentality of our day and all of the revivals, quote unquote, that we see today. It's all geared at the emotions. Get the people in. Do the, the right music set. Because when you do this song and you follow it with that song, it gets them every time. The people just, oh, and, and you've got to do that key change just right. And the timing has to be perfect. 
And you can twang and their emotions will go on a thing like this. And then we'll have the altar call and we'll bring them all forward and we'll do it over and over again. You can do that, can't you? But can you elicit genuine repentance by doing that? No, because salvation and repentance and conversion are not brought about by playing to somebody's emotions. They are the response of people hearing and understanding truth and embracing that truth and the work of God in the heart. The repentance train is pulled along by the engine, and what follows is the caboose. The engine is the intellect, because repentance is a volitional act, not an emotional act. Repentance is a volitional act, that is an act of the will. So the train of repentance is pulled by the intellect, by an understanding of truth, by an embracing of who God is and what God has done and what God has said, And the emotions will follow it, sometimes in varying degrees. But Jonah was no more able to to play to people's emotions and create an emotional atmosphere and bring about repentance. You can't do that. It's in the response to the intellect. The third thing that people use to try and suggest, they're trying to explain how something so marvelous could happen, is an eclipse. No, I said it right, an eclipse. There was a sense, and people have tried to prove that there was a solar eclipse early 8th century, where the sun was blotted out by the moon, and so this was a sign in the heavens, and they were fearful, they didn't understand what was going on, and Jonah's message kind of really closely coincided with that solar eclipse, and so he had the sign in the heavens, and the threat from the north, and an emotional people, and in comes a prophet with a message of doom, and all of that coincided well together to fabricate this repentance, or to create this atmosphere of repentance. Is that possible? No. What does the text say? God told Nineveh to go, or sorry, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah preached his message, and the people turned to God. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord. It's not a response of circumstances or situations. If you believe that salvation is a work of man, then you have to create just the right perfect environment, just the right circumstances, just the right mood, You have to get a speaker that's far more able to play to people's emotions than I am. He's got to be really articulate and be able to tell just the perfect stories that are really going to jerk the tears out of the eyes of the sinners and elicit that response from the sinners that you want to get. You've got to overcome consumer resistance to get the consumer, which is the sinner, to accept the product, which is the gospel. And you have to create a commercial or an infomercial grand enough to make that happen. But if salvation is of the Lord, then it just requires two things. A faithful herald and the Word of God. And that's it. That's all that's required. And that's all that Jonah had. He was a faithful herald, and he proclaimed the Word that God gave him. And God did the work. So what accounts for this? We're given the explanation for it at the end of chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the explanation for everything in chapter 3 and everything in chapter 4. That's the key verse of the book of Jonah. Did you know that this national repentance in the city of Nineveh is not mentioned anywhere outside of the Bible? That may surprise you. We have thousands of tablets from the nation of Assyria, from that area, which is right around... uh, uh, Oh, The name just escaped me. And if I tried to pronounce it, I would make a total train wreck out of it, so I won't do that. Uh, It's in Iraq. Oh, the name was almost there again. See, the minute it's... It's like a vapor. You try and grab it, and it just disappears. A city in Iraq, it was modern-day city in Iraq, is right over top of the remains of Nineveh. And they have excavated thousands of tablets 
of writings on it from all sorts of time periods from Assyrian history. There is, and this I think is interesting, and and there's one possible explanation, but I wouldn't die for this. I wouldn't go to the wall for this. There is a dearth, a real scarcity of tablets and writings from the first half of the 8th century of the kingdom of 8th century BC from the kingdom of Assyria. So all of the other time periods, we have thousands of tablets that have been excavated, many of them translated. A lot of them have not been translated. Thousands haven't. And archaeologists believe that we're going to excavate thousands of more tablets from Assyrian history and documents. But there is a scarcity, a sparsity of tablets from the early 8th century B.C., which is right about the time that Jonah went and preached to the city of Nineveh. Archaeologists have very little evidence. We just know of a couple of rulers who lived, Asher Don the third and Asher Nasari the fifth, I think, were the two rulers during that time period. But other than that, we really have no information. It should not surprise us if we don't find anything written of a national, a national repentance or a citywide repentance outside of the New Testament or outside of the Old Testament. Let me explain to you why. Assyrian kings were notorious for recording all of their good deeds, all of their accomplishments, their victories, anything that made them look good. They wrote it out in the most exacting detail. It was incredible the detail that they would use. Anything that made them look good got put down in writing. Anything that was embarrassing to them got whitewashed, scrubbed from the tablets. They did not write it down. They did not record anything that was of any embarrassment to a king or to a ruler. And even things that might be potentially embarrassing were cast in a good light to make them look really good. Now, you thought that historical revisionism reached its peak in the late 20th century America with school textbook publishers, but it didn't. The Assyrians had a corner on that market long before we ever discovered it. They would whitewash from the records anything that was potentially embarrassing and only record the good things. Now, do not you think it's possible, since this repentance only lasted about 30 or 40 years before they kind of turned back to their old ways, do you not think it's possible that a later king who would ascend to the throne would look back at what his people had done and he would say to himself, you know what, that's an act of treason. That our people would turn and worship the God of those despised Hebrews, no way. And being intent on killing and destroying the nation of Israel, which later Assyrian rulers were, in all likelihood, a lot of archaeologists believe this, those later kings would have scrubbed from the record any reference that their people had ever turned to the God of the Hebrews. Any reference at all. So why is it not mentioned outside of the Scriptures? Well, we have the most historical, the most accurate historical record we could possibly ever get in the Bible, and it mentions it here, so we know that it happened just as it's written. Some have suggested that this national repentance was not genuine because it didn't last very long. If it happened between 770 and 790, early 8th century B.C., by 721, the Assyrians were already knock, knock, knocking on the door of Israel, ready to conquer them. They had already, in just 50 short years, turned around and gone from God-fearers who had repented and turned from their wickedness. They had embraced again all of their old ways, and they were now turning again at God's people, aiming their sights at them and ready to conquer them. So some have suggested this didn't last very long. It was only 50 years long. How can you think this was a genuine repentance? This was just an outward show. Let me ask you a question. How long do revivals last? Are they typically multi-generational deals? Do you know that within one generation of the Great Awakening in our country in the 1740s, within one generation, all of the evidence and all of the, all of the people and all of the fire and the warmth of that revival had basically cooled and everything was back in its former state within just one generation? How long did revivals last in the nation of Israel? 
Read through the Old Testament historical books. You get a king who takes the throne. He does away with all idol worship, turns the hearts of the people back, reinstitutes all the old fasts and all the old sacrifices and everything, cleans up the temple, puts the book out, begins to read and to teach the word. And how long does that revival last? Till the death of the king. And the next king rises up. He doesn't walk in the ways of his father. And everybody turns right back to idolatry again. Same thing happened in Nineveh. Just within 30 or 40 years, the warmth of this would would, uh, cool off and they were right back at their wicked ways again. So was it a genuine revival? It was a genuine revival, a short-lived revival, but genuine. And their hearts, in their heart of hearts, they really did turn to the God of Israel. And it lasted for a short period of time. Now I asked you at the beginning, how can we tell the difference between a true revival and a counterfeit revival? This is what I've been waiting to get to. This is the shortest part of the whole sermon, but this is what I've been waiting to get to. How can I tell the difference between a true revival and a counterfeit revival? James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the Minor Prophets, sums up, I think, three marks, and I think we see these just here in the book of Jonah. And so I'll stick with these three indicators, which these three indicators would eliminate 99.999% of what passes as revivals in modern-day evangelicalism. Let me give the three of them to you. Number one, there must be faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That's number one. No revival... In the history of the world, ever, no genuine revival ever has begun or lasted or started, however you want to say it, or even got even slowly going apart from the faithful, accurate teaching of the Word of God. How is the Bible handled? You want to know if something is a revival or not? You just look at the leaders of the revival and ask yourself, how do they treat Scripture? Are they faithful expositors? Do they faithfully preach and teach the Word of God? The Reformation was brought about through the preaching of men like Luther and Knox and Wycliffe. The Great Awakening in our own nation in the 1740s was brought about through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and a lot of street and open-air preachers like those men. Every great revival, any work of God, always begins with the Word of God proclaimed. It was that way in the nation of Nineveh with Jonah. It's that way today. It has always been that way. You cannot ever have a genuine work of God, a genuine God-sent revival, apart from faithful, accurate explanation and preaching authoritatively of the Word of God. And yet today, what we see in many revivals is not faithful teaching of the Word of God. It's men giving their own personal revelations. God spoke to me. God told me this. This is what happened to me. Here's a word for you. Here's a word for you. It's not Scripture. Scripture is absent entirely. They're not interested in preaching or teaching truth. They're not interested in explaining doctrine or explaining the Word of God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to quote him, this is not in the book Revival. Sorry, I lose my voice. It must be the elevation. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Is it not clear as you take a bird's-eye view of church history that the decadent periods in, in the eras of the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined? What is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? It is renewed preaching. That single indicator right there eliminates 99% of everything that is called revival in our churches today. How is the Word of God handled? The second one is there must be a belief in the one true and living God. Jonah did not invite... Oh, by the way, the first mark, you see that in Jonah, right? The faithful teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Jonah went into the city and he proclaimed the message that God gave him to proclaim. He was a faithful herald of the word that God gave him. That's what brings revival. That's what always brings revival. Second, there must be a a belief in the true and 
one and only living God. Jonah didn't go into Nineveh and invite them to add his God to their pantheon of gods. He didn't say, look, I have another God for you to add to your mix. He went into them and he said, there is only one God and you must turn to him or you're going to be destroyed. And all of your idols cannot deliver you from the wrath that is to come. If there is going to be a true revival in our day or in our churches, then there has to be a preaching of and a belief in the one true living God. And yet if you look at revivals all over our nation, in churches all over the country, what do you get? You don't get doctrinal teaching. You don't get theological teaching. You don't get people standing up for 50 or 60 minutes explaining some one attribute of the living God. You have people coming not to hear doctrine, not to turn to God, but to get miracles, to see healings, to get prosperity, or some other temporal blessing or benefit that they think God has to offer them. It's not that they're turning to God. They want the miracles. They want the bennies. They want everything that they think God can offer them. That's not a genuine repentance. That's not genuine turning to God. Third, there must be not only a faithful and accurate proclamation of the Word of God and a belief in the one true God, but third, there must be repentance. You can't have revival without repentance. People have to turn from their sin and turn to God. That's the message. That's what revival is. That's what revival is. It is a repentance, not just of one person, but a lot of people at the same time. A revival is not some supernatural signs and wonders manifestation of the power of God. That's not what a revival is. A revival is an intensification of the work of God that he does normally, but he's doing it to a greater degree, to a greater scale, in greater numbers than he normally does. Repentance and people coming to the one true God and turning their hearts to him. That's what revival is. There must be repentance or turning from sin. Let me give you a contra example. The most recent shenanigans that were billed as revivals in our day, in our country, happened down in Lakeland, Florida. And people were coming, they were billeting this as a massive work of God. This, this uh, preacher who's up there, and he's all tattooed and pierced and all that good stuff, and he's doing signs and wonders and healing people right and left, and all of this was going on. Wow, what a revival. Wow, what a work of God. Now it turns out on the back end of this, we all find out that he, for all of that time, was a drunkard who was having an affair with one of his assistants. He ended up leaving his wife and kids. There's no repentance. Nobody in the sanctuary is ever called to repentance. He was not repenting of his own sin. So can you have, was that a genuine revival? I guess if it's a genuine revival, if you can have a revival without the Word of God, without people turning from their sin, without any preaching about who God is, then you could say that was a revival. I guess you could say that was a revival if you believe that the Spirit of God is going to manifest Himself powerfully, powerfully through a fornicating, adulterous drunkard, then I guess you could believe that that was a revival. There has to be a turning from sin. Look, friends, I want revival for our country. I do. I think that if God ever grants us, as a nation, a revival in this land, it is going to be two things that are going to happen simultaneously. I believe it will come through a reformation in the church, which means a return back to the truth of God's Word, which we are abandoning wholesale in our churches, and that will be coupled with a national repentance within the church. Now, I don't know how the churches can experience revival if they are not asking people to turn from their sin to the one true God. You can't do that. In fact, our churches are filled with people who think they're saved, but they have never repented. They've never turned from their sins. They were creating backsliders because people never slide forward to begin with. And so that's what we've got. Churches filled with people who are false converts, who think they're saved, but they've never turned from their sin and trusted the Savior. 
Do I want revival to come in our nation? I do. I want it badly. But it will only come the way it has always come, and that is when God does the work through the faithful, accurate preaching of His Word when people turn from their sin to the true and living God and place their faith and confidence in Him. That's how revival comes. If you have thought in your mind that revival is some signs and wonders, supernatural manifestation with all kinds of goofy silliness and antics and circus-type stage show, sideline, bearded woman-type things in Christianity, if that has been your idea of revival, friends, you have totally misunderstood what it is. A revival is exactly what we see in Jonah. The Word of God preached, people turning to that God in repentance and faith, believing that He is merciful and that He is kind and He will save those who turn to Him in repentance. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we do thank You that You are able to do a work in our land. And God, we, it is not enough for us just to pray that revival will come. We must be faithful to do those things that You have called us to do that might bring it to, bring it to pass. In the end, You are the one who is sovereign over all of these things. And we can trust You for this. We long to see a renewal and a refreshing in the churches, even in our own church. But God, that has to begin with us. So we pray that You would turn us from our sin that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word and who you are. And may we come afresh to understand the grace and the love and the goodness that is in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do a work in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.